you drink orange juice, it makes you pucker. So this ought to be a very acidic presentation. I'm glad you're all back. We're going to look at this, our second session, at the covenant of God, God's covenant with man, and particularly focusing on how God has worked redemption in history with his people in a covenantal fashion. This is, secondly, an area that many modern Christian churches do not emphasize in their theology. And one of the reasons they do not emphasize it and they do not, I think, clearly proclaim it is because a teaching known as dispensationalism has gotten in the way of understanding God's way of redemption in history with his people. You have on the outline that I've set before you under Roman numeral 2, Covenant Theology, and you see that we're going to be covering five distinct points. And I want to make very clear that each and every one of them uh, is worthy of a lecture or a book in itself. I'm going to really be covering a lot of material and a lot of theological distinctives when we talk about this one particular area of covenant theology. The first thing that we want to see in the teaching of God's Word is that God has sovereignly transacted a covenant of grace with his people, calling for trust in his promise and submission to his stipulations and carrying both blessings and curses. To put it in the broadest sense, God is a covenant-keeping God. God makes covenants. In particular, he has made a covenant of grace with his people. And because God has made a covenant with his people, he relates to them in terms of that covenant and expects of them obedience in terms of that covenant and rewards them in terms of that covenant. God does not have a lot of different ways of relating to men. And you can choose, well, I think I'll go the covenantal route. For you see, the covenant is not of our own choice or making. God has determined to relate to his people in terms of salvation, by way of a covenant. And those who do not proclaim the covenantal understanding of the way of redemption necessarily distort the teaching of the Bible about redemption. And it's not just a matter of distortion, which of course falls short of the glory of God and must be rejected and criticized for that, but it also impoverishes our understanding of who God is and how he has saved us. The notion of the covenant needs to be restored in modern Christianity. God has sovereignly transacted a covenant of grace with his people. Indeed, the Bible tells us that in mercy toward us as undeserving sinners, God established a bond. He created a relationship, a bonded relationship between himself and those who would submit to him in trust, submit to him as his people. And he determined how this covenant would work. He determined the terms of the covenant. And therefore, it is his covenant, his sovereign covenant. And because he has made this covenant for the sake of saving people, not on the basis of their own merit, but based on the work of our covenant mediator, Jesus Christ, it is a gracious covenant. God makes a covenant with man for salvation. You say, so what? Well, in our first session, we talked about the sovereignty of God. It's an important, crucial theological distinctive. 
But I want to suggest to you that the sovereignty of God cut loose from a concept of a covenant-keeping God is a very mysterious and spooky and uncomforting concept. And I'd like to illustrate that from what was one of the major theological battles of the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, theologians debated this particular question. Does God have the freedom to send the Virgin Mary to hell? Now, what was that all about? Well, you see, some schools of philosophy and theology had taught the sovereignty of God in such a barren and abstract way that it led them to say that God is free even to change his mind. God is free to do whatever he wants and no one can challenge him. And though that sounded like it was giving glory to God, as a matter of fact, it was taking glory away from God. Because it portrayed God as an arbitrary God, as some kind of despot in the heavens who could do whatever he wanted, and therefore he could even break his own word. If God chose to change things at the very end and send the Virgin Mary to hell, he was free to do so. When the Protestant Reformation came on the scene, it proclaimed not a spooky sovereignty of God, not the sovereignty of an arbitrary, voluntaristic God who can do whatever he wants to do, but the sovereignty of a God who has bound himself to his own word. God has made a promise, and he's not a promise-breaking God. God has made a covenant, and he keeps the covenant, even when we fall short of it, when we break it. God is a God of covenant-making and covenant-keeping. And we see this in the Bible. Repeatedly in the Bible, you will find statements like, I will establish my covenant with you. We read that in Genesis, the sixth chapter, verse 18, where God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. And that expression is found throughout the Bible. God is the one who takes the initiative. Notice, God doesn't say, come to the table, let's negotiate a contract. He doesn't say, what would you like to put on the table for consideration? Here's what I'd like to put on the table for consideration. Let's see if we can work out a bargain so I can save you. God comes and he says, I will establish my covenant. These are my terms. And it comes upon my initiative. And it's a relationship based upon my taking the first step and laying this down. I will establish my covenant with you. In Exodus, the second chapter, verse 24, as we are being introduced to the story of Moses and the Exodus from the land of Egypt, conspicuously we see these words, God remembered his covenant. As God hears the groaning of the children of Israel in Egyptian bondage and slavery, God remembers his covenant made with Abraham. That's why God in history takes steps to save his people, because he keeps his word. He is a covenant-keeping God. And the basis of God's covenant with man, as I've already indicated, is not man's initiative, not man's negotiation, not man's performance. The basis of God's covenant with man is simply his sovereign love and mercy. In Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter, verses seven to nine, Moses makes this abundantly clear to the children of Israel when he says, the Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to our forefathers, has the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand 
and redeemed you. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and loving kindness with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Why did God establish this relationship? Not because you were mighty, not because you had a lot to offer him, but because he set his love upon you. And he keeps oath, he keeps covenant with his people. And so he has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. God sovereignly transacts a promissory, bonded relationship with his people. He sovereignly transacts a covenant, and it is a covenant of grace and mercy. Of course, this covenant calls for his people to trust him, to trust his promises, and in trusting his promises to submit to his stipulations. And because it is a covenant with God who is just and holy and one with whom we will have to do, it brings not only blessing, which is its intention as a covenant of grace, but it brings also curse. In fact, the Israelites were told very clearly, weren't they, that if they were to keep God's covenant, he would bless them in the following ways. But if they were to break God's covenant, he would do the following with them by way of judgment. God's covenants bless and God's covenants curse, depending upon whether we are covenant keepers or not. And that is to say that in terms of the course of history, God sometimes brings people into covenant with himself who, because they are covenant breakers, come under more severe judgment later. Perhaps the leading illustration of that is the person of Judas Iscariot. We know that Judas went to the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, the Last Passover. We know that he was there and Jesus condemns him as the son of perdition, the one who will bring offense and stumbling, the one who goes out into the night to betray him. And yet, Jesus serves the Lord's Supper to Judas. Think about the implications of that. We know that this is the covenant in his blood. We know this is the institution of the new covenant. We know that it's the Lord's Supper we are talking about. And Jesus at one point even identifies his betrayer as the one who dips the cup at this time with me. And so Jesus, the Lord of the covenant, Jesus, the omniscient, who knows the hearts of men, Jesus, who knows the one who will betray him, nevertheless says he is in covenant with God. Does this bless Judas? Does this mean that Judas is saved? Absolutely not. It means that he has the greater responsibility. It means that he comes under the condemnation of God all the more. And so to be in covenant with God does not automatically mean that you are saved. To be in covenant with God means that you have been chosen in history to be part of his people. And you have been called upon to trust him and submit to his stipulations and follow him. And in so doing, you will be blessed, graciously blessed by him. But if you refuse to do so, if you spurn his mercy, if you turn against his word, if you become a covenant breaker, he will then break you. God has sovereignly transacted a covenant of grace with his people. In it, he calls on them to trust his promises and submit to his stipulations. And yet this covenant carries both blessing 
and cursing. Blessing for those who trust him, have faith in him and obey. Cursing for those who rebel and will not believe his promise and will not obey his word. And what is the purpose of God's covenant? In Jeremiah 11, verses 2 through 4, we read, Hear the words of this covenant. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. You will be my people. You know, that is a precious expression. Because we are familiar with it, I'm afraid we kind of move over it and we don't stop to dwell and reflect upon it and how important it is. God says, you belong to me. Of all the people on the earth, you are mine. Others, as Paul will say in the book of Ephesians, others who are not part of the commonwealth of Israel are aliens to God's covenant promises and are without God and without hope in this world. God says to those who wander in darkness, those who do not belong to him, those who have no right to be blessed by his attention, much less his promises and his salvation, he says, you will belong to me. You will be precious to me. You will be my possession. And I will be your God. What a blessed privilege to be able to say we belong to God. We take his name upon ourselves. You can see in this, I hope, some of the the great uh, horror and unholiness of taking God's name in vain. Taking God's name in vain is not simply a verbal act. It's not just swearing and using God's name in the process. But you see, God has placed his name upon us. And when we lift up his name and take his name and live in a, a life that displeases him, we have taken his name in vain. We've become covenant breakers because he said, I will be your God, you will be my people, I place my name upon you. You are mine in this world, you are my special possession. You have a unique relationship with me. Trust me, obey me, glorify me. And when we take his name in vain, when we take his name upon ourselves and live lives which are futile and disobedient and rebellious, then you see how horrible that is. We come under his curse. Hear the words of this covenant. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. And the most blessed part of the promise of God becoming our God and we becoming his people is that he has promised us eternal salvation. By taking an oath to support that promise, God has bound himself to a saving word. He cannot send the Virgin Mary to hell because God has bound himself to his own word, to his own promise. The reformers could say, not with any disrespect toward God, that in a sense we have God over a barrel. Of course, he's put himself there, and that's why no disrespect is intended. God has made a promise, and because he is the kind of God he is, he will not break it. Hebrews 9.15 says, speaking of Jesus Christ, He is the mediator of a new covenant in order that they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. God has made a covenant with His people. And if we live up to that covenant, if we are true covenant keepers, if we have faith in His promises, if we seek to obey His word, what we will receive through this covenant is the eternal inheritance. And in Hebrews, the sixth chapter, verses 13 to 19, I'll only read a couple of sections of that, we read that when God made promise to Abraham, 
since he could swear an oath by none greater, he swore by himself. And the author goes on to say, the oath is final for confirmation. Do you know what an oath is? Do you know what uh, is being referred to here by the book of Hebrews? It's what theologians often call a self-maledictory oath. Malediction is to say something evil or bad. And to utter a malediction, if I were to utter a malediction against you, I would be cursing you. I would say something bad about you, pronounce it upon you. And when, in the ancient world, people made an oath with each other, they pronounced malediction. If you do not keep this, if I do not keep this, let the following happen to me. And of course, at its worst, if I do not keep this promise, let me die. And here's the amazing thing. When God made a promise to Abraham, who would he swear by? When there is none higher. And yet the Bible says he swore by himself. Can you imagine? The sovereign creator God, the one who has life in himself and upon whom everyone depends for their own lives. This God says, Abraham, if I do not perform what I have promised, may I die. And since it is impossible for God to die, and it is impossible for God to lie, Abraham knew the firmness, the confirmation that God would keep this promise to him. And that's the promise we enjoy. The promise of our salvation that has come to Abraham and through Abraham to all the nations of the earth. As Paul says, we are children of Abraham by faith. We enjoy the same promise, the same assurance that the promise-keeping covenant-making God will see to our salvation if we submit to him and trust him as he calls us to do and obey his word. God binds himself to his promise. In Galatians 3, verses 15 to 22, Paul says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The law does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. It is Paul's theology that the Mosaic law could not violate the promise made to Abraham, could not stand in opposition to that promise, as though God has one way of salvation through grace and promise, and another way, through law and legalism and good works. Paul says, may it never be. Absolutely not. God made a promise to save his people, and salvation will be based upon that promise. The inheritance depends upon God's grace in the promise made to Abraham. And so God has sovereignly transacted a covenant of grace, a bonded relationship, based upon his mercy and favor. He takes the initiative. He calls the people to be his own. He requires of them faith and obedience in him. And he calls blessing upon them when they trust him and curses upon them when they disobey and rebel. So that's the first point here then. We believe in a covenant-keeping God. But now secondly, we also believe that all of the covenants made by God after man's fall into sin, all of the post-fall covenants are essentially one, so that they supplement each other rather than supplanting each other. And this is 
the major disagreement we have with the dispensational understanding of God's redemptive ways in history. According to dispensationalism, classically speaking, God establishes a covenantal relationship, and that's one way of relating to God, one dispensation of his mercy and grace. But then he comes after Abraham, let's say, to Moses, and he makes another dispensation. And this dispensation has new house rules, has a new stewardship, has a new approach to things. And so that you can go to God by means of the Abrahamic kind of relationship and dispensation, or you can go to God in terms of the mosaic and legal kind of relationship. And indeed, dispensationalism teaches when we come to the New Testament, the New Covenant, Testament and Covenant being two words for the same thing. When we come to the New Covenant, those who are Gentiles and are called to salvation by grace and favor, those who have faith in Jesus Christ, are not fulfilling what God did with Moses, but fulfilling only what God did with Abraham. And there is this Jewish legal covenant that continues on. Because according to dispensationalism, these covenants run parallel to each other rather than being an expansion one after the other. According to covenant theology, God has established a promissory, gracious relationship with his people. And throughout history, he has revealed more and more about that one covenant. So that what we read in terms of God's promise to Adam is not as much as what we know about his grace when he comes to Abraham, which is not as much as we know as when he comes to Moses or to David or to the new covenant. These are all expansions upon the original covenant promise made with Adam. A covenant of grace and mercy based on salvation by promise. In Ephesians 2, verse 12, I'd like you to notice the crucial expression that kills any dispensational understanding of redemptive history. In Ephesians 2, Paul is contrasting the Jews who were once God's people and were in the commonwealth of Israel and the Gentiles who were at that time, he said, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel without God, without hope in this world. And he's talking about covenants that draw a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Indeed, he later goes on to talk about that which raises a middle wall of partition, referring to that part of the temple architecture that separates the Gentiles who come to the temple from the Jews who can go into the inner court. And he's saying that God made covenants with his people that drew a distinction between Jew and Gentile. But though that distinction is no longer with us as we are all one in Christ. So we know that he's talking about Old Testament covenants that distinguish Jew from Gentile, and we know this as well, that the covenant which above all did that was the Mosaic Covenant. Indeed, in the Mosaic Covenant, God laid down the stipulation that his people were not to eat unclean meats. They were to be separate people. Indeed, they were not to sow their field with two different kinds of seed. They were not to sow their clothes with two different kinds of thread. They were to be a separate people. Jew and Gentile were set apart in the Mosaic Law. In that covenant, it was made very clear that you had to be part of the commonwealth of Israel to belong to the people of God. And now Ephesians 2.12. Paul says, You were at that time separate from Christ, strangers from the covenants 
of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Look at that expression. Strangers from the covenants of the promise. Covenants, plural. God made many covenants in the Old Testament with Abraham, Moses, David, Jeremiah. All of these covenants are found there and set the Jews apart as the special people of God from the Gentiles. And, and Paul calls these covenants the covenants of the promise. Notice that? Not many promises, but one. The single promise of God. All of these covenants are promissory covenants. They are not legalistic covenants. They are not covenants of merit and works. It is wrong to put the Mosaic covenant in a different classification from the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant of promise and the Mosaic covenant of law are both covenants based on the promise of God. They are unified covenants. All of the post-fall covenants are essentially one, therefore. And what they do is supplement each other rather than supplant each other. It's not as though God tried this way with Abraham, now he tries this way with Moses. But rather, what God said to Abraham, he expands more in the time of Moses and even more in the time of David, more in the time of Jeremiah. And of course, above all, we see the meaning of God's covenant with the coming of the mediator of the covenant, Jesus Christ, who establishes the new covenant once and for all. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For how many soever be the promises of God, in him that is in Christ is the yes. Wherefore also through him is the amen unto the glory of God through us. It makes no difference how many promises of God there are. All of those promises are affirmed and all of those promises are confirmed in Christ. They are all promises with Jesus the Savior. In Galatians, we see the importance of that. Paul tells us in Galatians 3, For God did not make promise um, unto Abraham and his seed as unto many, but rather unto his seed, which is one. And then Paul says, and his seed is Christ. The promise made to Abraham was ultimately a promise made to Jesus Christ, who would live up to God's covenant and bring the promises of that covenant for all those who are joined to him in faith. And how many soever are the promises of God, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, it's not just the Abrahamic, all of the promises of God are made in Christ. I want you to think of the horror of the dispensational understanding of redemptive history that tells us that the Jewish covenant, the covenant made with Moses, that legal, allegedly legal arrangement that God made, that continues even past the time of the new covenant as God's separate way of dealing with the Jewish nation. That theology teaches that the day is coming when the Mosaic arrangement will be reinstituted with the rebuilding of the temple and the reinstitution of animal sacrifices. And when that day comes, the one who is the Lord of the covenant, the great high priest of God's people, will not be allowed to enter into the temple because he is not of the tribe of Levi. As though God were making a promise with the Jews that had nothing to do with Jesus himself. It is theologically absurd. However so many be the promises of God, they are made with Jesus. And he is the fulfillment of each and every one of them. In Luke 24, verse 27, 
we read, And beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, Christ interpreted for them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus understood that everything in the Old Testament pertained to him. Every covenant of the Old Testament was fulfilled in him. John 5.39, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, yet these scriptures testify of me. Christ is the one who fulfills each and every one of the Old Testament covenants. God had promised Adam that one would come who would destroy the tempter. And the New Testament teaches us that Jesus has come to destroy Satan in his works. In Hebrews, the 11th chapter, we read that Jesus is the one who gains the Abrahamic inheritance and grants it to his people. We read that it is in Jesus that all nations are blessed, the promise that was made to Abraham originally. Moses showed the way of righteousness that God required, and it's in Jesus that we see that righteousness. He fulfills all righteousness for us. In the time of Moses, God reveals a sacrificial system and a temple system and a priesthood that talk about salvation and redemption. Yet it's in Jesus that we find the perfect atoning sacrifice for sinners. In Jesus we find the great high priest who becomes in his own body the temple of God by which we enter into God's presence. The Old Testament had promised to David a kingdom that would be eternal, but Jesus in the New Testament is declared to be the king who will rule over all and for all eternity. Jeremiah was told of a new covenant that God would make with his people. Jesus in the upper room at the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, says, this is the blood of the new covenant that I make with you. I don't see how we can miss it. There are no parallel covenants in the old covenant. There is no separate place for the Jewish people as such, but they are but part of the people of God in all eternity. God doesn't have two peoples. He has but one, those who are saved by grace, by his favor. And all of those people belong to him because they are related to Jesus Christ, to whom all the promises of God, all the covenants of God have been made, and in whom they are fulfilled. And so the second point of covenant theology is that all post-fall covenants are essentially one, supplementing rather than supplanting each other, contrary to dispensationalism. I'd like to read for you just briefly a section from chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which tells us very well what the Reformed uh, faith is, the distinctives of Reformed theology. And we read there that this covenant, speaking of the covenant of grace, was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. Under the Gospel... When Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them is held forth in more fullness evidence and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. And then here's the crucial part. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under different dispensations. The confession of faith says God's saving way with men is one, not two. There is but one covenant of grace, the same in substance for the Jews and for the New Testament church. Yes, outwardly administered in different ways. In the old covenant, administered in terms of a sacrificial system to look forward to Jesus. In the new covenant, administered by the preaching of the gospel that declares Jesus came to do what the animal sacrifices were all about. And so do you understand that? One covenant, not two, not different parallel ways of God dealing with men, but one. The difference between us and the Old Testament Jews is they look forward to the Savior, we look back to what the Savior did. But what we enjoy is the same saving relationship that they enjoyed. The same in substance, though the outward form, the different administration, the outward administration is different. Well then, what does this tell us? about our attitude toward the Old Testament. For instance, how should we look upon the moral stipulations of God revealed in the Old Testament? Reformed theology has an answer much different than what you hear in dispensational churches today. In fact, uh, if, if you will, I would suggest that the battle cry of dispensationalism can be heard just here, that when you bring up the question of keeping the laws of the Old Testament, you'll be told, no, we're not under law. We're under grace. We're not under law. We're under grace. So we're not under the Old Testament laws of God. We're under the grace of God. Now, what, of course, that is what Paul says in Romans 6.14, so it sounds very biblical, but that is not, of course, what Paul says in Romans 6.14. Yes, he uses those words. That is not at all what he means. In fact, in Romans 6.14, you will see that what Paul means by being under the law is being under the dominion of sin. And so if the expression being under the law means being under the Mosaic system, then what Paul is saying, which is absurd, is that everyone in the Old Testament was under sin. No one was saved. Because they were all under law, and that means the dominion of sin. Paul's not saying such a thing. He's talking about being under a relationship with God that knows only the resources of outward verbal commandment. He says... You're not under law. You're not merely under the provision of God's commandments because if that's all you have going for you, then of course you are under the dominion of sin, aren't you? Because the law condemns you as a lawbreaker. The law condemns you as a sinner. But you don't have at your disposal merely the resources of law, Paul says. You're under grace. And because you are under grace, sin shall not have dominion over you. Were the Old Testament Jews under grace? Well, what did we see in Ephesians 2.12 already this evening? All of those covenants were covenants of the promise. When God delivers his people, he says, I didn't deliver you because you were more numerous or you did more than others or you were worth more to me. I did it because I set my love upon you. I did it graciously. Yes, the Jews were under grace. When Paul says we are not under law but under grace, he could say that for the Jews as well. They were not under law, but were under grace. 
The fact that Moses is known for giving a law doesn't mean that the only thing in the Mosaic dispensation was legal commandment. But now let's ask ourselves, what about those legal commandments? Were those commandments the sort of thing God just kind of one day got up and dreamt up? He said, well, I think we should have laws that say you shouldn't murder. That sounds good to me. Or I think we should have laws that say we shouldn't steal. No, no, maybe thievery is... No, no, steal... No, I think what we'll do is we'll say don't steal. I mean, that makes a mockery of God's holy character. When God reveals those laws by which His people are to live, He's revealing His own holiness, His own moral perfection, His own righteousness. And so when He lays down these laws, they're not arbitrary. They're based on His character. And now you have to ask yourself, is God's character a changing character? Does God say at one point, well, I think homosexuality is really perverse, and then a few years later, he goes, well, I guess I was too hard on the homosexuals. It's really all right. Or does God say, I think homosexuality is really perverse in Israel, but if the Gentiles are like that, that's okay. No, God is holy. God is unchanging. And God universally rules over all his creation. He doesn't have double standards of right and wrong. Let me ask you another question. Why did Jesus come into this world? Why did Jesus have to come as the Savior of men? He came to redeem us who have broken those holy laws of God, didn't he? Now, would it make any sense at all to say that Jesus came into this world to redeem us so that we could go on breaking those laws? You see, in the New Testament, we don't have to keep the Old Testament laws because Jesus has saved us. Well, of course, that's absurd. Jesus saved us just because we broke those laws. And being saved, we don't run back to breaking those laws. Being saved, we seek now a life of righteousness and obedience before Him. Nevertheless, it is the prevailing theological dogma of our day that if something is not repeated from the New Testament, excuse me, from the Old Testament in the New, that we're not bound by it anymore. The default setting in current evangelical theology is. You follow the New Testament and the Old Testament only when it's repeated in the New. Automatically assume that it's abrogated unless you see it rewritten in the New Testament. Then you follow it. Now what does that say about the character of God? What does that say about the character of the Messiah and the saving kingdom that he has brought? What it says is that there's a huge cleavage in the character of God. That the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New. Of course, there have been heretics throughout history that have said that. You have this really wrathful, mean-spirited God of justice, maybe, of the Old Testament. But the God of the New Testament is really loving and kind and merciful. No, no. It is the same God. The same God who reveals the justice of His commandments is the God who sends His Son to die for our infractions of those commandments. Jesus did not come to do away with the holy law of His Father. He came to reestablish it to redeem those who had violated it and give them the strength of His Spirit to obey it. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, would you please notice in verses 17 to 19 what Jesus says about our attitude toward the Old Testament law. He says, Don't begin to think that I have come to abrogate the law or the prophets. Don't get it into your mind that I have come to do away with the Old Testament. I have come not to abrogate, but to fulfill. For truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the slightest jot or tittle of the law shall pass away until everything has happened. How long will the jots and tittles of the law be lasting? 
valid in moral force and authority until heaven and earth pass away. And he says, don't you dare think otherwise. And then, therefore, in verse 19, any man who teaches the breaking of the least of these commandments shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The default setting in dispensationalism is abrogated unless repeated. The Lord of the Covenant says the default setting is valid until I say otherwise. Right? He says, don't you dare think the slightest jot or tittle has passed away. Now, we do know elsewhere in the Word of God, Jesus reveals how, for instance, the sacrificial system and the temple system and the high priesthood have passed away with his saving work. He has the right to do that, but none of us do. And when it comes to the holy, moral commandments of God, Jesus says, don't you dare think that they've passed away with my coming. They have not. And covenant theology has taught through all of the years since the time of the Protestant Reformation this same perspective. And it is only in the late 20th century that we have people in Reformed churches who hear that and they go, oh boy, what a, that's a new idea. That's legalistic. No, it's not. It's just what covenant theology has said all along. That we have the same God and the same covenant and the same moral stipulations as the people of God of old. And this leads me to my next point. The fourth point is that the New Testament church has taken the place of Old Testament Israel. The New Testament church has taken the place of Old Testament Israel. Covenant theology teaches that the people of God in all ages are one. God doesn't have two people. He has one. And in the Old Testament, that one people of God centered on the nation of Israel. Not that it was exclusively that. Gentiles could be saved. They could be circumcised. They could come into relationship with God. But his people were the Jews. And in the New Testament, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is taken away from you, Jews, and given to a nation producing the fruit thereof. He's talking about the international church of Jesus Christ, where Jew and Gentile, according to Paul in Ephesians 2, have an equal footing and standing in the kingdom of God. Those who were once far off from the commonwealth of Israel, Paul says, have been made near by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. You Gentiles were once apart from God's covenants, but now in Christ you have been brought close, you have been brought near. And so now God's covenant people are those who are in the church of Jesus Christ. And yet we are one with Old Testament Israel. One people, one God, one covenant. The New Testament church has taken the place of Old Testament Israel. In Romans, the 11th chapter, verses 17 to 24, you'll see that the New Testament church and Old Testament Israel are both branches in one olive tree of faith. In Hebrews, the third chapter, followers of Moses and followers of Christ are made part of one household of God. Indeed, in Galatians, the third chapter, verses 7 and 29, Paul says that those who have faith in Christ are the sons of Abraham. We are the sons of Abraham. Not those who call themselves by blood and ethnicity Jews, but those who follow the faith of Abraham. We are his children. In Galatians 6.16, Paul pronounces benediction upon the Galatian church made up of Jew and Gentile alike, and he pronounces God's blessing upon the Israel of God. He says, you are Israel now. 
you who are circumcised in heart, not simply in the outward flesh. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter describes the church as the Old Testament assembly at Mount Sinai with the same words that you find in Exodus 19. The church is called the restored house of David in Acts 15. The new covenant that Jeremiah said would be made with Judah and Israel is made with the church according to the upper room discourses in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11.25. In Ephesians 2, there's no longer a middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. In Romans 2.29, Paul says to be a Jew today, to be part of God's chosen people, is an inward matter of the heart. In Revelation 21, in the consummation of all things, we see the city of God incorporating the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles of the church. Jesus says in John the tenth chapter, there is but one flock of God and one shepherd over it. I mean, how many images, how many metaphors, how many verses does it take for us to understand that we are the people of God today? Not the Jews, not the nation of Israel, because Jesus said to that nation, I take the kingdom of God away from you and give it to another nation now one that will produce the fruit of God's kingdom. The New Testament church has taken the place of Old Testament Israel. You see, dispensationalism not only teaches that God has parallel covenants throughout history, therefore there's a separate place for the Jews, but dispensationalism fails to see that in the New Covenant, that which was promised to the Jews and their special privilege as being God's people is now the promise and possession of the church. And it's said over and over and over again. So that I believe the only way you could miss it is if you came to the Bible with preconceptions that blind you to what it says there. Now what does this mean? If we are the new Israel of God, if the church is the kingdom of God, then today believers and their children, that is to say their households, are to be baptized as the covenant people of God. Because the Bible teaches us that Baptism is God's mark of ownership. Baptism is the way God distinguishes his people from the world. And if we are the people of God as Israel of old, then we are to baptize not only those who are believers, like adult Abraham, but also the seed of believers, as Abraham's seed, were circumcised. Now sometimes I'm afraid that when Reformed people present this teaching, uh, they go so quickly over it, that uh, people sometimes miss why the Bible tells us that we make the application of the principles of circumcision to our children today. In Colossians, the second chapter, verses 11 and 12, I think we find the quickest indication of why we do that, although a great deal more could be said. Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Paul there says, In whom, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, in the putting off of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. Paul says, you who are followers of Christ have been circumcised. Now, this isn't a circumcision made with hands, not in the body of the flesh. Now, what is that circumcision? Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, wherein you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Your circumcision, Paul says, is baptism. 
What circumcision indicated in the Old Covenant, the cutting away of the filth which was unacceptable to God, is now symbolized in the washing away of filth in baptism. And so the two have the same substantial meaning. The outward procedure is much different, of course. But the point is, in God's eyes, they accomplish the same thing. They mark God's people and symbolize redemption, the putting away of that which is odious and filthy in the sight of God. The cutting away of the foreskin, the baptism of the outward flesh, these both are but outward signs of an inward grace. And so baptism is the New Testament version of circumcision. And who was circumcised in the Old Covenant? Believers and their children. And so we believe, as Reformed theologians, that in the New Covenant, believers and their children are to be baptized. Now, I think that New Testament connection is, is really uh, quite loud and undeniable, but still have people who say, well, yeah, but it doesn't actually say bring your children for baptism. And so I'd have you look at uh, Acts, the second chapter, verse 39, where on the day of Pentecost, Peter invites those who have believed the promise of God, the gospel, to come forward and to be baptized. And here's what he says. The promise is for you and your children. Indeed, he is citing, he's making allusion to the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 17, where God says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The covenant, the promise is for you and your seed, Abraham, for you and your children. And likewise, in the day of Pentecost, this is what Peter proclaims. In 1 Corinthians 7.14, the Apostle Paul says explicitly of the children of believers that they are holy. That doesn't mean, by the way, inwardly pure. The word holy there means they are set apart. They are consecrated. They are not seen as the same as those who are in the world. And so we believe, one, that the New Testament church has taken the place of Old Testament Israel, and that therefore believers and their children or their households are to be baptized as the covenant people of God in this day. And then finally, our fifth point that we want to look at tonight under covenant theology is that Reformed theology has taught that the Messianic kingdom has now been established on earth and that it will grow to have worldwide visible success prior to the return of Christ. And when Christ returns, he will not set up an earthly kingdom for a thousand years, but rather he will return, and all who are in the graves will be resurrected. There will be a general resurrection of the saved and the lost, and all will be judged at that time. And this, of course, is quite contrary to the fantastic and, uh, and flashy and faddish um, teaching of so many churches that tell us that there's going to be a rapture prior to a time of tribulation and that Jesus will then come back and set up a kingdom on earth and rule for a thousand years. The Reformed churches have not taught that ever since the days of the Reformation. They have not done so for good biblical reason. First of all, we're not waiting for the kingdom of God to be established on earth. Jesus came as the king many years ago and established that kingdom. In Matthew the 12th chapter, verse 28, Jesus said, If I by the finger of God cast out demons then is the kingdom of God come upon you. Again, could anything be more clear? Jesus says, if I'm casting out demons, then you know the kingdom's been established. Well, of course, the reason he says that is because he's just cast out some demons and was accused of doing it by Satan. 
And he says right there that this would not be possible if the strong man were not first bound. The very same figure of speech used in Revelation, the 20th chapter, for the beginning of the millennium. When a great angel comes down, a strong angel from heaven, that angel binds Satan for a thousand years. Jesus in Matthew 12 declared, I have bound the strong man, I am now destroying his house. After his resurrection, he declared that all power and authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him, and for that reason, we were to make disciples of the nations. Satan is not able to stop the outward advance of God's kingdom. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1.13, Paul says that we who are Christians have been translated out of the world, out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of God's dear Son. We don't wait for the kingdom to be established. It has already been established. And the Bible says that that kingdom is going to grow and grow and grow. Like a mustard seed, Jesus said, very small at the beginning, growing to be a great tree. Like yeast, insignificant when you first put it into the batch. But then, of course, it makes the whole loaf to rise. The kingdom of God will continue to grow. Isaiah the prophet had said that of the increase of his government, there shall be no end upon the throne of David to establish it and uphold it with justice henceforth and forever. And the zeal of Jehovah of hosts will accomplish that. In Isaiah the second chapter, the prophet speaks of all the nations flowing into Zion, into the temple of God, into the church, they use the New Testament expression, and there they will learn peace and they will learn righteousness and they will follow him. In Psalm 72, the psalmist talks about all the kings of the earth bowing down before him, all nations serving him, and justice coming to the world through his administration. We believe the messianic kingdom has come with the coming of the king, and we believe that that kingdom is growing through the advance of the Great Commission and the preaching of the gospel and the nurture of God's people. And we believe that the day will come when, as Zechariah 14.20 says, Holiness unto the Lord will even be written upon the bells of the horses. The most insignificant aspect of parade uh, pageantry will be consecrated to God. Every element of life will be consecrated to God. Malachi 1.11 says a pure offering will be made to Jehovah from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof. Around the world, pure religion will be found. Peace and justice, and this will come, of course, not through the machinations of the United Nations and the humanistic plots of men, but will come only through the preaching of the gospel and submission to the covenant of God and his stipulations. Then we will learn to walk in righteousness when we follow Jesus himself. The Bible tells us Jesus is going to come again, and when he comes, it will not be simply for the sake of uh, raising the righteous to rule in a millennial kingdom that now is not characterized by peace and the preaching of the gospel, but rather by violence and Jesus beating people into the ground into submission. Rather, the Bible says when he returns, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. No secret rapture here. It's going to be the loudest day in human history when the archangel of God declares the coming of Jesus again. Acts 24.15 says, And we have hope toward God that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And in that day, all will come forth from the tombs, John the fifth chapter says. All will come forth in Matthew 25 to be separated sheep from goats. And some will be banished into everlasting perdition, and others will be invited to spend eternity in the kingdom of God. 
And so we believe that when the resurrection does come and the judgment comes, it will be for all men. We don't believe that there will be some kind of rapture that separates the righteous from the unrighteous for 1,007 years. And then finally God will do that. But on the final day, Jesus says, John the 5th chapter, verses 28 and 29, the hour is coming when all who are in the graves shall hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good unto the resurrection of life and those who have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So do you see, I hope, in this uh, short session, how significantly different the Reformed understanding of God's work in history is? How different their understanding of God's redeeming work with his people is? According to covenant theology, salvation comes through God's transacting a covenant of grace with his people. We believe that all of God's post-fall covenants are one and center on Jesus Christ. We believe that the principles laid down by God in the Old Testament are still binding in the New unless God tells us otherwise. We believe that the church of Jesus Christ is the New Testament Israel and that therefore our children are covenanted to God even as Old Testament Jewish children were. We believe that with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God has been established on earth that it is growing through the world and that it will see great success with the preaching of the gospel. And we believe that the end of history will not be a matter of the Jews being put in the land and a great time of tribulation and a battle of Armageddon and so forth, but rather Jesus will come and will resurrect the just and the unjust for one final day of judgment and then the eternal state. Covenant theology is a distinctive of the Reformation faith. It teaches the continuity of God's powerful promise throughout history. We are saved by promise, a promise that is powerful and will conquer the world, and a promise that shows continuity with God's ways of dealing with his people through all of history. So on the one hand, we have a God-centered theology, and on the other hand, we have a theology based in God's powerful promise and his covenantal dealings with his people. Tomorrow, if you can come back, I'd like to explain to you that Reformed theology is a world-affirming theology. We have a distinctive view of how we live in this world. And then finally, tomorrow, we'll look at how Reformed theology has a distinctive understanding of decency and order in Christ's church. Life in the world, life in the church tomorrow. And then if you can be with us on the Lord's Day, I'd like to tell you why we believe all these things finally, as I preach to you on a Reformed view of Scripture. The Bible tells us so. Thanks for coming out tonight. about either one of the lessons tonight or other matters of Christian theology that uh, you're interested in. Okay, right back here. All right, the question has to do with laws in the Old Testament like the dietary stipulations, which are not like the sacrificial system, really, and yet um, it doesn't seem like we should follow them today. How do we know? How do we distinguish between those laws we keep today and those we don't? Well, the Reformed answer to that question is, you assume that all of the Old Testament continues to be binding today until the lawgiver says otherwise. Until God explains otherwise, then we assume those principles keep um, applying. They're still authoritative. For instance, 
since God has said that the children of believers are to be marked out from the world as holy unto him, consecrated unto him, then we apply the mark of the covenant to children of believers unless God tells us otherwise. We believe that it's wrong for us to engage in, in such acts as, say, bestiality, even though it's not found in the New Testament because God hasn't told us that he's changed his mind or changed any application of his uh, prerogatives from the Old Testament. So then, when someone brings up an example from the Old Testament, uh, my general approach has to be that's binding unless Scripture tells me otherwise. Now let's take the example you've given, the dietary standards of the Old Testament. If we look at the dietary laws, the clean and unclean meats <coughs> stipulations of the Old Testament, you will notice that especially in the book of Leviticus, they're put in a context where God says, you are to be a clean people separate unto me. Therefore, you're not to eat unclean meats. Okay? I think you might even be able to anticipate what would happen with the coming of the new covenant, even with that bit of Old Testament revelation, where God is really indicating that the refusal to eat unclean meats is a way of symbolizing the separation of his people from the world, the Jews from the Gentiles. In Acts the 10th chapter, you may remember that the Apostle Peter falls asleep on the roof at Cornelius's, not at Cornelius's, but he's going to go to Cornelius's. He then has a vision as he's asleep, and God lets down from heaven a sheet that has unclean meats in it, all manner of unclean meats shrimp and pork and all those sorts of things. And God says, Peter, rise up and eat. And Peter protests. He says, God, I've never eaten anything unclean. And what's God say? What I have cleansed, let no man call unclean. Well, what a clear declaration in the New Testament scriptures is that Old Testament provision doesn't apply today. And why is that? When Peter, you know, um, awakens from the dream, then the messengers of Cornelius are there. He's to go to this Gentile's house there's a clear indication that Jews and Gentiles alike are part of the kingdom of God. There is no clean, unclean meat uh, pedagogy or symbolism to be followed. And so that's why it's all right for us to eat those meats today. But the only reason we say that is because we have biblical warrant for doing so. Good question. Right here. No, absolutely not. That is a misreading of Scripture on a very large scale. Let's look at who belongs in God's covenant. Look at the Lord's Supper. Jesus ordains the Lord's Supper and serves the meal of the covenant to whom? The son of perdition. I mean, what a, what a glaring example that someone can be in covenant with God and not be saved. Yes, he served the, the meal of the covenant to Judas. That was the declaration that you are in covenant with God. And by the way, that made his sin all the more heinous. It, it is impossible, though it is sometimes tried in Baptist churches, it is impossible in the days of the new covenant to say that only those who are saved are in God's covenant and are baptized. The, the fact of the matter is, any, any really self-aware Baptist knows that there are hypocrites in Baptist churches too. And yet the mark of the covenant has been put on them. 
Well, I don't have any problem with that. I don't think Baptists should be, you know, um, excoriated for that, shouldn't be criticized for that. When someone comes forth and professes the name of Christ, they should be baptized. But they should also be warned that there are blessings and cursings. And those who don't live up to their baptismal vows will be cursed of God. Now, what we are saying is they are in covenant with God, but under his condemnation. And so it is not the case that only those who know the Lord in a saving way are in covenant with God, even in Baptist churches. Because when you're baptized, you are covenanted to God. And Presbyterians, those who are in Reformed churches, are simply saying the same principle applies to our children. And the reason we baptize them is not because they profess faith, but because God has said the promises to you and to your children. But the position of a baptized infant is no different than the position of a baptized adult in a Presbyterian or Baptist church. Both are um, covenanted to God and baptism doesn't automatically save any of them. And because you are baptized, whether as an adult or as an infant, because you are baptized, God expects you to live up to his covenant. And when you do not, you come under his curse. So what does Jeremiah, by the way, what you read from Hebrews 8 is a quotation of Jeremiah 31. What did the prophet Jeremiah mean that in the days of the new covenant they shall all know me? Jeremiah, as I see it, is is predicting a day where in a sense, evangelism, to use prophetic exaggeration, that is, a, making a teaching point by hyperbole. Jeremiah says the day is coming when evangelism will be, as it were, outmoded. You won't have to say to your neighbor, no, Jehovah, for they'll all know me from the least to the greatest of them. And, and Hebrews says, this is the beginning of that day. This is the covenant that Jeremiah was talking of, where all shall know me. That does not mean that all who take the mark of the covenant automatically know God. When we think about it, it would be impossible for human beings in history under whatever ecclesiastical order. It would be impossible for them to absolutely say who is covenanted to God and is saved and who is not. It's not possible. And praise God, it's not required of us either. We are not to judge by the heart of men. And we'll talk about this in terms of church government tomorrow. We are to judge in terms of the profession and outward walk of men. We look upon the outward um, appearance but only God looks upon the heart. And in fact, in Matthew, the seventh chapter, Jesus says one of the most terrifying verses in all the New Testament. He says on the day of judgment, some who have even done mighty miracles and cast out demons in his name will say, Lord, Lord, and he will reply, I never knew you. I don't know who you are. You don't belong to me. So it isn't our job in the church Um, when we're determining the application of covenant signs to decide who does finally and eternally belong to God, we're to mark only the outward profession, whether it's credible or not. Another question? Go ahead.
pre-trib rapture theory. Yeah, the question is whether Dave McPherson's work on the origins of the pre-trib rapture notion uh, amounts to a scholarly treatment of the subject. And, of course, you put me in an awkward position publicly to comment on another author like that. I want to be very careful. Um, for the most part, I, I, I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm willing to bet my house and my children on it yet, but I would say that uh, there is a lot of very compelling evidence presented by McPherson whether he does all of the right things and ringing the changes and drawing the right conclusions from his evidence, I'm not going to say, but I think it's scholarly enough that people ought to be a bit concerned when they hold to the pre-trib rapture theory and then find out that it really comes from a, a visionary experience of a woman, you know, um, back in the 1830s and so forth. Uh, that is troubling. But, you know, in the end, if I held to the pre-trib rapture theory, Dave McPherson would not be able to dissuade me from it until someone came along and showed that it wasn't biblical. Because um, as strange as it may seem, and we might even want to discount in, in advance, um, that someone would come up with something in the 1830s that the church did not know, and yet it was in the Bible all along for all that time, it's vaguely possible. It could be that that is what the Bible teaches and that this woman's vision then finally got the church back on track to see it in the Bible. So in the end, I think I could dig in my heels as a follower of the pre-trib rapture and say, well, McPherson, you haven't done anything to my faith because I think it's biblical. Even if you could show that God used some visionary woman to bring our attention to that. You see what I'm saying? I'm straining very hard to show that in the end, that is an interesting point of church history, but our theological conclusion has to be based upon the interpretation and exegesis of Scripture. And on that point, I don't see how anybody can hold to the secret rapture when, of course, the key verse teaching the rapture says that it's going to take place with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God. There isn't going to be any secret about it. On that day, everyone's going to know that Jesus has come back. Uh, yes, right here, Gene. Our children are born covenanted to God, and in that sense, they are um, disciples of Jesus Christ. What do you mean? Yes, we disciple our children. It is, it is true that our children are to be baptized because they are in covenant with God, because we are in covenant with God. And it is true that because we are disciples of Jesus and they follow us, they follow Jesus. They are disciples too. But of course, being a disciple of Jesus doesn't assure your salvation either. There are many disciples who turned away from him according to the New Testament. So our children need to be evangelized. Our children need to be called upon to repent of their sins and to trust the Savior, not take those things for granted. But those who are baptized as adults need to be evangelized and continually called upon to confess their sin and trust Christ as well. Yes? Um, my question has two parts. You mentioned the first section about the verse in John 17 where he said that pray not for them, not for the world, but for them to be a good enemy. Yes. first part of the question is done. Was he referring to his 12 disciples only? And the second is kind of a, I'm, I'm going to ask you to kind of interpret 
Well, I do believe the high priestly prayer has to do with those who have been given to Jesus. And, of course, that description is broader than just the apostles. It's not just the apostles who have been given to Jesus. And, in fact, Jesus uses um, the distinction, mankind is divided into the world and those given to him by the Father. He says, I pray not for the world, but for those you have given me. And so I wouldn't want to leave the non-apostolic followers of Jesus in the category of the world. Okay, and then what's the verse in uh, chapter 18 that you referred to? It's uh, the ninth verse of the 18th chapter. Okay. I'm not sure how these words of Jesus fit into your question, really. Um, in verse 8, Jesus answers whether he is Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these others go their way, that the word might be fulfilled which he spake, of those whom thou hast given me I lost not one. Okay, how is it that in Jesus protecting his disciples from the arrest, he has not lost one of them? When you answer that question, and I'm not proposing an answer right now, I'm not sure what to say, but when you answer that question, it's going to apply to all of the apostles, to be sure, but it would also be true of the rest of us that he will not lose one. It seems to me you have this, this expression, I'm protecting them, not losing one. And this comes to a certain kind of fulfillment in the life and experience of the apostles. And, but the general expression applies to all of God's people, whether they were in the Garden of Gethsemane or not. But that's a, I think that's a technical point of biblical interpretation we should take up at another point. It doesn't have to do really with the distinctives of Reformed theology tonight. Are we um, losing steam here? No, no, okay, the Austin of the Pagan. Because this, this is the Reformed version of the altar call, you know, one more hand. <laughs> right here. Yes. Okay, uh, for those of you who might not be familiar with that nomenclature, the covenant of redemption is an expression that's been used in the history of theology for the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, where Jesus agrees, well, he's not Jesus at that point, he's God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, agrees to, um, to become the Savior of men and the mediator of the covenant of grace, and uh, he will be rewarded uh, by the Father with him being given... Um, uh, he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He will be given a great people. He will be rewarded and be made the king over creation and so forth. 
So Jesus agrees to do certain things, or the second member of the Trinity who becomes Jesus, agrees to do uh, certain things to bring about the redemption of God's people, and then certain rewards are given to him by the Father. And this is what has often been called the covenant of redemption. Now, how would you like me to develop that? Well, actually, I was wondering what, you know, I'm just kind of, in my mind, there's not a lot of writing out there on the covenant redemption. No, there isn't, as far as I know. And, and, and some of the other things that come into this is some people have taken passages of scripture where it seems that the son is subordinate to the father and, and they corrupted it and the person of the Godhead are not subordinate to another one. What's going on in those passages, I think, is about the covenant I do think that it is uh, a worthwhile a prima facie plausible hypothesis that in those passages that speak of Jesus subordinating himself to the will of the Father that there is behind that this concept of the covenant of redemption. I'm not going to say yes or no, you know, finally tonight on that question, but I do think that's a worthwhile thesis to pursue. There's nothing obviously wrong with that that would keep you from pursuing it. Um, however, I would say that where the book of Hebrews and elsewhere in the New Testament, we have the declaration, this is my beloved son, okay, um, and this day have I begotten thee, and things of that nature, that the reference is not simply to the incarnation, at one point it is, at another point it's a reference to the resurrection, and at yet another point a reference to the ascension of Jesus Christ. It seems to be one of the ways in which the New Testament summarizes the whole work of the incarnate Son of God from birth through resurrection to ascension. And God declares his relationship to him that he has this special filial uh, Relationship that he is a son uh, to God in a unique way. We are sons and daughters of God, but not in exactly the same way Jesus is. In fact, you may remember Jesus says, I go to ascend to my father and to your father, which is an interesting expression in Greek where Jesus wants to differentiate the way in which he is a son of the father and we are sons of the father. And then you may add to that uh, observation and differentiation that perhaps the other passages of Scripture that talk about God rewarding his Son for the work of redemption may be behind this. Now, is Jesus subordinate to the Father? Um, the answer is yes, he is. But he's not, as we say in theological circles, ontologically subordinate. That is to say, his being or his reality, his status, 
as God is not a subordinate status. He is equal in power and glory and eternality. He is not just like the Father's substance. He is the very substance of the Father. And so that's the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. He is not subordinate as a different kind of God-like being. However, he is functionally, or the uh, the theology books throughout history call it economically, in terms of the outworking of redemption, he subordinates himself willingly to do the will of the Father in bringing about uh, redemption, even as the Holy Spirit is functionally subordinate to the Father and Son in the application of redemption in the work in the church. But all of them are equal in power and glory. All are equally God. Well, we have time for one more question, if you would like. Otherwise, if you're tired, we'll call it a night. You're tired. And we'll call it a night. Yes, I'd be happy to close in prayer with a reminder that we will meet back tomorrow at, help me, what time? One o'clock sharp. And we'll have two more sessions tomorrow talking about life in the world and then life in the church. And I really hope that all of you who are here tonight can make it back at that time. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight really with a sense of awe and wonder that a God who is as glorious as we have seen you to be in the pages of Scripture, a God who is sovereign over all, who has created all and governs everything, a God who establishes his dominion in history and will judge all mankind is a God who very graciously is willing to be in relationship with us to be our God and of all things to call us your people we want to thank you our sovereign creator and glorious Lord that you have covenanted yourself to us and made a promise that you will not break Indeed, you have taken an oath against your own life that you shall save your people. We do thank you, especially those of us who are Gentiles, that we have come to enjoy that promise and that we are one with the people of God throughout all of history. We do thank you that you have translated us out of the kingdom of Satan and darkness and placed us in the kingdom of your dear Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We do thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came into this world to lay down your life for your people. We do thank you that in so doing you established your saving kingdom on earth. We do thank you that we are part and parcel of your redemptive work in history and that that work will be victorious, that your kingdom indeed shall grow and we shall enjoy seeing the fruit of that and bringing glory to your name in the growth of your kingdom. We do pray that you would give us a lively hope about your return and how you will raise all men, some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of eternal death. You will judge all mankind. And on that day, Lord Jesus, we ask that you will stand up for us, your people, and intercede for us then, even as now you do intercede with our prayers to the throne of God. And we do pray that you will be our advocate And before the very holy bar of justice of God your Father, you will declare that you have died for us, and therefore the penalty has been paid. And truly we do stand in awe and wonder of you, a sovereign, covenant-keeping, gracious God. We simply ask as we break tonight that you would keep us in your holy presence, 
Help us to fear you and reverence your name and to remember who you are, to behold who our God is. And in so doing, have true and lively and active faith in you that we would wish to glorify you and serve you and obey you in whatever you ask us to do. That we would offer that only response which is appropriate. That since you have owned us and created us and redeemed us and will judge us, that we will give our lives to you and to your service. So we pray in the most blessed name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.